and you're listening to Pop Could Never Save Us. I am Holly Boson, and I'm joined here today by James Murphy. I am in my lane. I am flourishing. I am living in an entirely white room, which is just covered in succulents, in pot plants. I have curly script on the wall saying, what is this I can't even? I have a tattoo on my face of a minion with a blonde haircut going over to the side, throwing America into a burning dumpster. We are in 2018. You all remember 2018, where it came in the Gregorian calendar, this one in the common era. Do you remember the false missile alert in Hawaii? Do you remember when there was that general election in Monegasque? Oh, the memories we all have. This is the closest we've been to the modern era about being in the modern era. And it is interesting to look at something which I can't help but feel is modern with an eye back. Look at these things retrospectively. To look at someone like Travis Scott in historical context, it's it's been an interesting way to approach something that I consider basically now. Five years ago feels simultaneously like it was last week. And it also feels just out of date in the point where it's like, oh, it was last week, but I had worse eyebrows. It also feels like a historical era because so much horrible shit has happened since 2018. Tell me, James, did you still have a sense of smell in 2018? I could smell things, sure. I remember roses. I remember a city street after it had rained. There were, yeah, I think I had all five senses functioning at that stage. Yankee candles held no fear to me in those days. Yep. My 10-step skincare routine had 10 steps. We cannot talk about 2018 without talking about the technological developments, as ever. And musically, the main technological development that is happening is the fact that things have moved much more into the box than before. Back when we were last here in 2003, music was still mostly being done on tape. It was still being done in these big creaky analog studios. They didn't want to shell out to buy new studios yet. But by this point, you can just do so much more on your computer, on like normal consumer software on a computer. Having a big recording studio seems hopelessly old-fashioned. And some of these songs that we have are songs that you get the sense were produced in a bedroom and they had a vocal recorded in a bedroom. And that's just not something that would have happened in 2003. We're talking now about some of the biggest artists of the era just simply being able to be on tour even, to be sitting in a hotel room with a laptop in front of them and to slur some nonsense into a mic over a beat and that become a huge hit. Yes, and of course the pioneer with this was of course Lil Wayne. That was how he did his legendary mixtape run of the late 2000s. Lil Wayne is in many ways the father of the hip-hop in this era, but we will get to talk about that. But it's not all that we're encountering today. We've got traditional large club mix going on here. We have old school, at this stage, classic artists that have appeared. We've got some of the oldest themes of pop music that's ever been there, such as fighting through hard times and relationships and the dancing in the club is still ever present as i say but it's worse it's so much <laughs> worse than now do you remember that song by lf system that was all over the place earlier this year that had multiple tempo changes because it was designed to do tiktok dances too right the 
nothing in this has any tempo changes at all. The closest you get to tempo changes are the beautiful and melodramatic beat switches in sicko mode. Yeah, 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 yeah. Gone on you with the pick and roll. Younger flame here in sicko mode. And a few switches into double time flows for the rappers. Everything else is set on this rock solid between 90 and 120 beats per minute bop rate. It's designed to be static background listening, which makes me wonder how many people were actually listening to this. This seems like the era where streaming, the rise of just being able to listen to any music that you want, has led people more towards listening to their own idiosyncratic, maybe outdated favourite music, rather than wanting to share in the monoculture, which in 2003 we still basically had. It feels to me like the big commercial pop machine has figured out something that everyone can basically agree on being good. And it's this particular sound, which is, it's a bit disco, but it's also not... It's a bit EDM, had all of the juice sort of sapped out of it so it doesn't scare the horses. There's just enough of this kind of tropical Latin feel, but also it's not identifiably Latin. And the vocals are all this kind of post-Brit school, post-Adele, neo-soul sound with highly affected vocals. This is an era more so than any we've actually experienced before where you can tell singers are obsessing over the particular timbral quality of their voices in the microphone. Let you go no idea how this music is going to age. I think it's quite possible it may end up aging very well in the same way that the music from the 80s has aged, just because it's such an identifiable and specific sound of this time. But at the same time, a big part of the appeal of the 80s is getting to enjoy those forbidden fruit kind of synths. There's nothing as much fun as that going on here. It's all very good taste, and apart from a couple of extremely horrible taste artists who do show up on this chart, very much in opposition to what everyone else is doing. Yeah. So many of the songs on this chart are duets between a male and a female vocalist, and they all have this very songwriterish quality. A lot of the songwriters of these were people who were recruited from the country world. It's hard not to see Taylor Swift as possibly being a, a precedent here. It all feels quite grown up, while at the same time feeling very youthful. And it feels like the last moments of the millennials. If you think of the 2010s as being the decade that the millennials were in their youth, the beginning of the 2010s is all that big apocalyptic party. Oh 
start the dance, we might die young. The ending of the decade and where we are now, it feels really bleak. It's like the lights have gone off at the club and we're all still there because we can't afford rent. There's all of that throughout this chart for sure. And there's the beginnings of the attempted changing of the guard between the millennials and Gen Z artists. The fucking tragedy of it all is a lot of these Gen Z artists just started immediately dying of overdoses as we tried to find a new way forwards. We have a posthumous hit here for Lil Peep. Falling down, it's very much been reproduced to give it this sense of, of death. It feels absolutely necrotic. a spoken interlude from the would-be cult leader was in fact shot up in a drive-by XXX Tentacion. Yeah, when people die, that's when we like, you know, because your remorse kind of makes you check them out. Juice World appears on this chart, who at this point is still very alive, though if you listen to his lyrics, only barely. You left me falling and landing inside my grave, I know that you want me dead. I take prescriptions to make me feel a-okay I know it's all in my head But he unfortunately died of an overdose just before he was starting to really find his own voice as an artist It was a 27 club, oh, oh, oh. We're making it past 21 And it's not just that it lost us an excellent pop star, it's that it potentially cost us a goatless candidate. He had a posthumous hit a couple of months ago, freestyling over his favourite Eminem song. You couldn't always hear how good he was over his recorded music, but before the overdose that killed him, his mental health was improving, and so his sense of humour is starting to come out in his lyrics. Liberated from the auto-tune, he really sounds like himself. I think he would have gone in the prestige rap lane, he would have gone in that sort of Eminem, hyperlexic, clever punchline direction. I think so, definitely, yeah. So yeah, this is a strange era, as a lot of them have turned out to be as we've looked back, and I do want to feel more of a sense of unabashed fun from pop music than this era wants to supply, but of course it reflects the world that's around you, and we are politically coming towards the end of a mainstream hope. Trump is in the White House. The Tories are considering are continuing to exist in number 10 in an increasingly zombie fashion. And while there are upsurges of possibilities of change, those are in the process of being very aggressively stamped upon yes. by an establishment unwilling to even concede the most basic of points. And it doesn't help that the flashes of hope, unfortunately, are coming from old men. Jeremy Corbyn in the UK and Bernie Sanders in the US, both of whom are supported by most of the artists here. 
in many ways, their platform is that they're hearkening back to an older era before all of neoliberalism happened, that they're the ones who have memories to remember when socialism wasn't a dirty word, when it was something that you could do, that they can remember the post-war consensus. Absolutely. In America, Sanders is very much the epitome of a New Deal Democrat who continued to have his consciousness raised during the LBJ civil rights era and the idea of the bid society. And in the UK, Corbyn was elected to Parliament either just before or directly after the Michael Foote socialist era of Labour was just coming to an end. And both of them have that continuity with the idea that the government might take some responsibility for the lives of its citizens as opposed to leaving them on the waves of whatever business wants to make ever more capital out of. Imagine this, young people. Life might actually be slightly better. I've lived through it and I can prove it. There's a rude term that is used for a lot of this music. In 2012, I believe a music journalist for The Guardian coined the term new boring to refer to the post-Adele wave of British pop. There's also a term that I've seen used on Twitter, which is Jules bait, superficial quality with references to 1960s and 70s American soul. I remember in our very first episode, I talked about the retro pop of the 2010 in many ways representing an era that had lost all hope that there was a way forward. But sometimes you can find a way forward through going back to the past, and you see that happening here. Some of the more forward-thinking artists here are referencing 70s rock. Oh my god, Ronnie! Hey, somebody grab me some clippers. This fucking beard is weird. part it's all just like this utter tyranny of good taste it is bad good taste it's stuff that is designed to go on in the background that you can hear played at an exercise class at the ymca that isn't going to startle you or do anything unexpected so all of the quality songwriting and quality vocal performances that went into this all feel very weightless they don't matter I would say that some of that is due to the lyrical preoccupations and repair even that, that is at the heart of so much of this music. They don't have, they aren't expressing an awful lot within the words. It's also completely depoliticised, especially considering how incredibly politicised this time was. Some of the rappers dabble on the idea of the mental health being perhaps connected to bigger problems with society. Kathy Griffin stacking ammunition, slap the clip and cock it back on competition. This is how I shot a head. Gabby Gifford. But mostly it's considered to be your own struggle. I look up and the whole room spinning. You take my cans away. I can so overcomplicate. People tell me to medicate. Of course, the music can be as eloquent as you like without there being a meaningful lyric. That happens many times through all types of music. But I say that. Because the emphasis has moved from meaning to mood, there is a, a a lightness that has to happen at the same time because of that. And this is music 
in the main that you can leave playing in one room, walk off to another room, do the dishes and come back and not feel like you've missed out on too much. It is perfect for a critical uh, maelstrom such as Twitter, as was huge at the time, bigger than it is now, whereby the instant take is both possible and appreciated. Okay, what do you think of this song? I've absorbed all it has to do, and now I can move on to the next thing, having made my mark. I think for that reason, uh, pieces of art that are less immediately comprehensible or demand more of the listener were punished within this time. We may be getting ahead of ourselves, but it's only within hip-hop that I can see musicians aiming for songs that you can really get more out of on re-listens. And most of that is done through the wordplay. Get your ass checked like a fucking Nike. Me not icy, that's unlikely. And she gonna suck me like a fucking high seat. Let's do one to five. Let's start out here with Promises by Calvin Harris and Sam Smith. And Jesse Reyes. And Jesse Reyes, of course. How could one forget? <laughs> I'm here now. So this is the most affecting I've ever found Smith's voice. They've always drawn their influence from the massive vocalists in the diva tradition, women like Whitney Houston and Chaka Khan, which isn't, as you know, where my preferences lie, my aesthetic preferences lie. As long-time listeners of Pop Did Never Save Us would know as well, I like to hear the struggle in expression through an instrument such as the voice, which helps me, a practiced non-musician, to identify with them. So when the ability of a singer such as Smith, who is an incredible technically proficient person when they were able to bounce off the top of the stratosphere generally my ears close off to the song but in this case smith holds back some of their showing off and they understate the vocal to an extent that i think is very pretty magic is in the air there ain't no science here so come get your everything Given the shaky egg kind of Euro dance production that is Calvin Harris's general successful go-to, I think it's got an end of the night kind of charm and it's got a blurred, intoxicated feel that achieves all it sets out to do. And as you say, like Jessie Reyes is here, she does basically nothing and she does walk away with the song <laughs> just with most tiny little uh, burst on there. I didn't get the chance to even say that, so thank you. The production here is a logical conclusion for how little can you give something and have it still technically be disco. I cannot say that this gets my feet tapping, but I can also not say that this was intended to. It's basically there to provide a level of anaesthesia while you do the dishes. Again, Jesse Reyes is what actually makes this track because she's secretly insane and the way she uses her voice is completely the opposite of the way that Sam Smith uses theirs. Sam just goes through the song in a sort of workman-like, workman with an X instead of an A, fashion. Jessie Reyes hits notes that don't exist and she giggles. That's what ends up giving it the hook. That's what gives it the lift, the energy. Could I even imagine what she would have given if she'd actually been allowed to do a verse? 
Moving on then to number two in the charts, we have now East Side by Benny Blanco, Housie and Khalid. Maybe you know I just wanna leave tonight. We can go anywhere we want. Drive down to the coast, jump in the sea. Just take my hand and come with me. Yeah, we can do anything if you put a mind to it. Take your whole life, then you put a line to it. My love is yours if you're willing to take it. I believe Benny Blanco got his start as someone who did production on Dr. Luke Records. We'll be young forever. You make me feel like I'm living a and a year ago, after we got out of this particular bubble of weightless music, Benny Blanco was responsible for some delightful disco production for BTS. Let's make some bad decisions. I want you. I remember I used to follow him on Twitter back in the mists of time and I unfollowed him because he was posting transphobic videos. All of the fun things about this track for me are definitely undercut by the fact that the musical mastermind is Benny Blanco, who, as you say, was a protege of Dr. Luke. Dr. Luke is such a foul Svengali, the Andrew Tate of 2010 chart hits that I'm quite willing to tire off anyone capable of associating with him. He's done hits from everybody. He's done for Juice World aforementioned, Scissor, Rihanna, Britney Spears, Maroon 5, Katy Perry, The Bieber, Ed Sheeran, Kesha which is, of course, notable for the Dr. Luke Association. For learning all that, though, I did like this track the first time I heard it. I felt that it reached to an authentic mood. It was the escaping, hopeless situation kind of fire. And I think that the singers on the track, Halsey and Khaled, I think they do a really good job, a really admirable job of expressing the born-to-run feel in a musically Tracy Chapman fast car context. And I love that. I love that message and the musical approach of the track. It's structured really, I think, quite pleasantly, the lyrics. It takes the narrative from the hope of young people stealing a romance from under the nose of their disapproving parents. I know your daddy didn't like me much And he didn't believe me when I see you with a wall Every day she find a way out of the window to sneak out late To hopeless, lower economic situation where burdens are placed on them. Yeah. We can do anything if you put a mind to it. Take your whole life, then you put a line to it. My love is yours if you're willing to take it. Give me a heart to set, gonna break it. And then they go on to the dream of escaping their hardships and reconnecting to that initial love. Got a dead end jobs and got bills to pay. Have old friends and now our enemies. And now I'm thinking back to when I was young, back to the day when I was falling in love. That and it's all built around this acoustic musical theme that was, I learned through research, stolen from an American band called American XO and a 2015 song called Loveless. the position here of 
quite liking the song, but also completely disapproving it because of the uh, person who was its prime mover. This is another duet between a male and a female artist on an EDM thing. It is very similar to our number one today. And the... This format, the male-female duet where they're singing these kind of country-inspired lyrics, it obviously came out of the Chainsmokers' utterly smash hit Closer. So baby, pull me closer in the backseat of your rover That I know you can't afford Bite that tattoo on your shoulder Pull the sheets right off the corner Of the mattress that you stole From your roommate back in Boulder We ain't ever getting older and that also had Halsey on it, singing about millennial love. Halsey, I think, runs off with this track, just like Jesse ran off with Promises. Halsey's vocals have an unusual quality to me, which sounds to me like they've been sped up. The vibrato is very exaggerated. 17, and we got a dream to have a family, a house and everything in between. And then uh, suddenly, we're 10, 23, and we got pressure for taking our life more seriously. There's something about the authentic versus electronically processed voice that has been kind of a cultural flashpoint starting from autotune becoming so readily available in the middle of the 2000s and is still very much carrying on now. Vocal production is in many ways is racialized. The indie pop magnetic fields singer Stephen Merritt got cancelled in 2006 for commenting that indie artists, white indie artists, tend to use unprocessed vocals that attempt to sound completely naturalistic, while heavy processing is used on the vocals of black vocalists like Celine Dion, who is of course white. There is yes. an extent here to which the heavy use of vocal processing on this particular chart is a way of linking it to hip-hop. That feels to me like it's emblematic of this moment of cultural blending. Halsey is doing soul affectations with asthma recording techniques, with her vocals clearly digitally sped up and auto-tuned, and nobody notices. It's You can just put that in a luxury pop production. Which is a huge step away from the way that auto-tune was originally used. One of the first songs to make a huge impact of auto-tune was Believe by Cher. Point was to make her vocals sound different, to make them sound strange, to make them stand out on yes. a chart where this was brand new. And it was arguably brought to its highest ever artistic use by T Pain, who is a black pop artist. Yes. By 2018, auto-tune is just seen as the default, the standby, is what gets used. Yeah. And it's something that I think now we're seeing moved away from in 2023. It's not even a novelty, it's no longer the default, it's just something that's there to improve a good vocal performance and usually make it better. What we do here nowadays, and it's something I've pointed out in previous episodes, is people who have been brought up listening to auto-tunes and now use their own vocals to try and imitate that, to try and have some of that sliding between the keys. 
Anne-Marie is an example of someone who sings that way very successfully. Well, your love is worse, worse than cigarettes, even if I had 20 in my hands. Halsey is one of the exceptional singers of this particular wave of pop music. She's singing about blue Corvettes and the back streets and jumping in the sea, but it doesn't even have the weight that even someone as superficial as Lana Del Rey would give it. And that's not her fault. It's not intended to. It's wallpaper. It's, it's beautiful, tasteful wallpaper that can accompany you in your shitty millennial life where you're worrying about being too old now that you're 27. I think this is fairly new for pop music to the point of which previously was always to grab your attention, be as exciting as possible and make a point and a butt on the way out. For it to now become wallpaper is... It's something that the specials experimented with as an alienation tactic, actually. But it's not something that's lived in the mainstream in such a large way. I was going to ask you, like, what name would you actually give this genre? I don't like the names we've used before. The new boring refers to a different, much more acoustic sound, and it makes a value judgment that I don't agree with. Okay, so it's pop for millennials, but we can't really call it millennial pop because that's already been used for a totally different sound from 20 years ago. I desperately tried to brainstorm a name for it. I came up with the term blob pop, but that makes it sound like the music itself is blobby. When it isn't, it's very clear and lucid. What I would put to this would be a prestige smudge. That's actually very good, yes. I mean, pop has always been a syncretic genre of multiple different influences and everything. We've gotten too cool here, too considered, too stoned. We're much too cold to be having even a hint of bubblegum. Anymore. We're also too depressed. Yeah. If I remember how it felt living in 2018, which feels is increasingly hard to remember, it feels so long ago. I just remember feeling constantly like I kind of had toothache a bit because I knew that Donald Trump was in power. If that can happen, anything can happen and nothing matters. There were so many different ways to respond to that. You had the people who were earnestly trying to make it so that none of the crazy people thought that they were talking to them and tied themselves in knots explaining the morals of their writing. I think a lot of this tastefulness in the pop charts is a reaction to Donald Trump's aggressive tastelessness. Donald Trump is a man who ended his rallies by playing YMCA despite the fact that the village people repeatedly asked him to stop playing it, and despite the fact that YMCA is obviously a gay anthem, and he is a massive homophobe, it didn't matter to him. That's the kind of guy he is. He had gold everything. He had a button on his office that allowed him to have Diet Coke. He's the most aesthetically awful president ever. Young people were differentiating themselves by showing that they were actually the real grown-ups. It's a pity that the which side are you on had to take up taste on the side on which we stood because so much of what pop culture has been and what it's moved towards has been tasteless, has been beautifully tasteless, has been boundary transcendently tasteless. Yes. Everything that I could do, I need, oh baby, yeah, baby. Woo! 
is, well, this is what happens. You get a, a pop chart filled with Sam Smith and Calvin Harris. So talking of good and bad taste becoming politicised between Trump and the resistance. At number three, we have a song by two Trump supporters that unfortunately cracks this whole top five wide open in this utterly refreshing blast of stagnant air of horrible taste and it is i love it featuring kanye and little pump what's the time smoke per sip and train she take lines you're such a fucking hoe i love it okay i loathe it i get more hate for this than i do any of my music takes. I am the only Lil Pump fan that I know of. Explain yourself. Lil Pump was one of this range of rappers who became famous through his social media presence rather than his actual musical quality. We'll get to check in on another rapper like this later. Pump has three personality traits. He's richer than your mum. He loves to fuck your bitch. I just fuck your bitch. What? I just brought my wrist. Okay. I just fuck your bitch. Ooh. I just fuck your bitch. Okay. And he deals coke. He adds a fourth personality trait to this on his second album, Harvard Dropout, which is that he hates school. And that, to me, I think reveals what is actually going on with this project. It is something universal and something I personally really respond to, which is just being an absolute brat. I can trace a line from Lil Pump's music Back to everything that I love when I throw on license to ill. His deliberately anti-lyrical style is actually a lot cleverer than it seems at first glance, and he performs it like someone who is constantly in awe of the fact that he's allowed to get away with this shit. And that 
really humanizes him. He opens it by repeating like the most horrible lyric we've heard so far, which is, you're such a fucking hoe, I love it. And you hear it first time and you think, oh my God. You're such a fucking hoe, I love it. You hear it the second time and you want the world to end. You're such a fucking hoe, I love it. You hear it the third time and you start to get worried that he's not going to say anything else. You're such a fucking hoe, I love it. And then, then he finishes up with, your boyfriend is a dork. Your boyfriend is a dork. Which is such a fundamentally childish thing to say. McLovin. McLovin. And that itself sets us up for the guest vocalist who is appearing here. Because that feels to me like a reference to the insanely bad Kanye line, super bad chicks giving me McLovin. Which is a smart pull because that line was from Forever, the legendary Drake, Kanye, Wayne, Eminem head to head that settled all of the arguments about who was the best rapper and which one was the worst. Spoilers, it's Kanye. So in a sense, Lil Pump is putting himself up there in the canon. He's saying that teaming up with Kanye is a forever level event which shows insane cojones. That's ultimately the appeal of Lil Pump. It's also, unfortunately, the limit of his talent. Like a lot of people who became famous through contrarianism, he drifted into mindless reality show antics and making songs that were even more reductio ad absurdium anti-lyrical in order to piss off lyrical rappers who hated him. then supported Donald Trump in his re-election campaign, though I'm not sure how sincere about it he was. Donald Trump, the world's most classy genius, could not remember his name. And speaking of sound, music and other things, one of the big superstars of the world, Little Pimp. Then he got weird, put out a metal song that everybody made fun of, but it actually is kind of sick, and spells out the Beastie Boys comparison better than I can. Then for some reason he went into doing Detroit rap despite the fact that he's from Florida. Have you ordered 20 sandwiches from Popeyes? Huh? I got his Mexican biz drinking peroxide. Wow. If I owned you on walk hard, just let me die. Dude. I'll catch a body, cut my hair, and I'll go to Dubai. Seriously, don't listen to the hate. Make your own opinions. Check him out yourself. There's a lot to love. But anyway, back to I Love It. You get the sense from this track that he is, in fact, baffled by Kanye West's presence here. It feels to me like he's just thinking, who is this old man who's trying to use me? But he's still willing to do that. But that was always something that was really interesting about Lil Pump. A better song that he did later was Be Like Me. Everybody wanna be like me. Spent 2K last week on the white tee. Where he has a guest verse from Lil Wayne about how much Lil Pump sucks, and he's willing to put that out there. What the fuck though? Well, if you must know, I see these lookalikes. It's kinda sus though. Maybe this is just like my inner Malcolm McLaren coming out in me, but I appreciate that. There's a certain sort of joy de vivre in being this nakedly horrible that recaptures a lot of what drew me to hip-hop in the first place. There's absolutely none of the stuff that people love about hip-hop here, like the class consciousness and everything. There is a little bit of that though. Obviously Lil Pump 
grew up in a gang environment. And the other thing with him is that he was never going to get a normal job because he is ridiculously dyslexic. He can barely read. If he hadn't made it big as a celebrity, he would have fallen through the cracks. Remember on our 2003 episode, we in fact had another very anti-lyrical rapper who was a famous reality star who used this sort of deliberate bad taste and shock value to get hits. And in a detail that I think this show manifested into the world, there's actually a club promo which has Fat Man Scoop rapping his verse over I Love It. I mean, if we're going to take who's had a better impact on the world as a whole, Fat Man Scoop or Little Pump, I am going to go for the guy who's turned us to put our hands up versus the guy who's well, let's talk about this here. If we're going to read into the lyric, you're such a fucking hoe, I love it, way more than it deserves, you get the sense that Lil Pump thinks a Lil Ho is the girl who goes to school wearing lipstick. Mm. Like, there's something very innocent. It comes off as, like, the way that the boys in school used to just brag about the girls that they were having sex with when you knew full well they were virgins. He's on a song here, Little Pump. He's talking about a woman that he's with. She's free in a way that he didn't expect her to be. And that's what he's, his enthusiasm for that there is uh, what's going on. There's nothing inherently reactionary about that. Everyone likes being a fucking hoe sometimes. Yeah, for sure. I mean, he's still using women as a commodity here. It's no different to the stuff that he says in all of his other songs. And so getting mad at it is a bit pointless. However, one minute and nine seconds, Kanye comes into this here. And I was reminded here, Holly, about 10 years ago, there were some riots that happened in my hometown of Croydon. And a lot of it was just kids going about stealing vodka from supermarkets and doing very little in the way of harm. And then it came up that Reeves Furniture Store, a long beloved furniture store, was burnt down. And I was taken aback by that because it had nothing to do with the youthful exuberance of destruction and short-term fun. It turned out that it was an adult in his 40s who had been around long enough to have real hate steeled into his heart and then go on to burn down that furniture business. Kanye comes in and he brings in a different and far more fucking unlikable arseholeness to this track. He's a bully here. He's sneering at those he sees as beneath him. And that's this kind of woman that he hates and wishes to dominate. We should probably talk a little bit more about Kanye. I did an I Don't Speak German episode about Kanye West for them who didn't really know who he was. We mentioned Kanye a few times in a 2003 episode, although he wasn't present yet. Kanye became the critically acclaimed rapper of the late 2000s and the beginning of the 2010s, with everyone sick of 50 Cent and with Eminem never quite regaining his place in the centre of pop culture. Kanye very much branded himself as being a great artist. I know I'm the most influential. That time cover was just confirmation. This generation's closest thing to Einstein. So don't worry about me, I'm fine. He used all of the trappings of legitimization of hip-hop, I guess. He did music videos where he had animatronics made and then put the animatronics in art museums. High art, and gave the impression to a lot of 
critics and so on, that he was the one who was in fact taking hip-hop to this bigger place. I don't see any reason to believe that he was doing that more than, for example, Lil Wayne was doing. His mental health started to really damage him and his music. He went from writing songs that caricatured women, but he came off as very sympathetic to them. He was writing songs about going home and having dinner with his mother. Well, I mean, I say he was writing songs. He was writing the instrumentals for these songs. These lyrics were written by Rhymefest, who is an interesting guy, and you should look into him. Around the time you get to Yeezus, his lyrics about women get to the point where it's like he is blaming them for literally everything, and he writes achingly, horribly misogynistic shit like Blood on the Leaves, which is basically all about how like women are committing lynchings by aborting his babies that he put in them without their consent. Like, it's so awful. I can't believe that he was given a pass for this shit. Now you sit in courtside, wiping on the other side. Gotta keep them separated. I call that apartheid. Then she said she pregnated. That's the night your heart died. Then you gotta go into your girl and report that. Main reason, cause your bastard said you can't abort that. That misogyny as well as his failing mental health, ended up being what led him to what he would later become, which was first a Trump supporter, then eventually a neo-Nazi. The Jew, I love everyone. I'm done with the classifications. Every human being has something of value that they brought to the table, especially Hitler. His Christian morality of simultaneously believing that women should be completely chaste, but at the same time supporting anyone who is an abuser, that is a sincerely held far-right political belief that is way more loathsome than anything said by the gangster rappers. It's Madonna slash whore. It's the most tedious binary that you could ever come up with. You're such a fucking hoe. When the first time they ask you, you want sparkling or still? Are you trying to act like you was drinking sparkling water before you came out here? It's very difficult for me not to see this as part of Kanye's artistic project and self-expression from the off. There was always that dichotomy in his head between the pureness and the sexuality. Kanye's rapping disintegrated so badly. One of the things that everyone says is so great about Eminem's rapping is his ability to rhyme words that don't rhyme. A peak and a hope for the B-I-R-D in the air. Somewhere some kid is bumping this while he lip syncs in the mirror. That's who I'm doing it for. The rest I don't really even care. Kanye has, by this point, developed the opposite science, where he can't even make sick and quick rhyme. I'm a sick fuck, I like a quick fuck. I'm a sick fuck, I like a quick fuck. I'm a sick fuck, I like a quick fuck. I'm a sick The track, I think, is balanced out with the opening sample from the comedian Adele Givens, who was in Deaf Comedy Jam in 1992. I think that gives 
just the slightest glance of a different perspective, a light-hearted bit of female empowerment. I don't think that that was the intention of using that. I think that was to show the whore side of Madonna whore dichotomy. This song was in fact debuted at the Pornhub Awards, which were presented by Kanye. He was the creative director of the Pornhub Awards, quite literally acting as a patriarch, commoditizing female sexuality. In his verse, he talks about buying plastic surgery for the woman. Yeah. I buy you some new tits, I get you that nip tuck. How you start a family to kind of slip down. He can never really own Kim Kardashian's sexuality. And he wouldn't want to own it if it wasn't for the fact that she was the woman whose sexuality everybody wanted to own. And he has to share her, therefore, with everybody else who wants her. He's going to take credit for everything that makes her beautiful, even though she is probably richer than him. Oh, no doubt. I'm sure she is. That's probably one of the issues that he had within his relationship as well, quite yes. aside from sexuality. Kanye claimed he was a billionaire, but as far as I can tell, that was all paper money. He owned most of that in shares of Adidas, and when Adidas dropped him over the anti-Semitism stuff, he pretty much thirded his net worth instantly. Little Pump here on the track is a tonic. Can you imagine anyone ever saying that? <laughs> Little Pump has his musical instincts here, and I think their instincts of now, a time that's passed, but Pump has a sense of humour. And I do forgive him being an annoying little dullard because of his youth and because he achieves what he sets out to do. But the second that Kanye appears on this track, he is flushed down the toilet for me. Oh, yeah. There's one more thing we do need to mention about I Love It, which is the Minecraft elements in the music video. That, at the time, was quite a blow for a youth culture. It was You saw a lot of these clout demon rappers including another one we're going to discuss later in the show, using Minecraft aesthetics at this point, because Minecraft is a game that was played by kids. And I think a lot of the visceral negative reaction that a lot of people have to Lil Pump was actually the fact that this was the music that was seen to be representing the youth at the time when the millennials were beginning to fret about their own wrinkles. He seems to represent the idea that we're not leaving culture in good hands. Of course, the truth is, there isn't actually a real difference between Gen Z and Millennials because the generational split is one that cannot be brought back to the war. All the other generations can. The boomers were born after the war. The greatest generations fought in the war. Gen Xers were born during the European post-war reconstruction. And the Millennials were the people who were the children of the boomers. Gen Z, I don't think they're really another generation. The only things that are culturally different between millennials and Gen Z is just fashion. It's been extremely irritating for me to see the millennials take against Gen Z in any kind of way to fall for that false culture war between how something is going wrong with the youth for the first time. They don't get it in the same way we do. I don't completely buy into the Strauss-Ho generational theory and it just seems now to be accepted as the truth. I think that there's so many more factors in how to decide who a person is and how they interact with others. A lot of the people supporting Donald Trump were in fact young people. Like that was one of the things that was so horrific about it. You can't make any judgments about anyone's political affiliation from their age. Lil Pump is a teenager in this song. He supports Donald Trump and he thinks women are bitches. Kanye West is a man in his 40s. He supports Donald Trump and he thinks women are bitches. 
It's the same shit. Little Pump's ability and capacity to grow has probably been limited by his own cohort and the world in which he lives and his wealth and fame. But there is always the opportunity for someone who is as young as he is to find their way and to find compassion. Whereas I think Kanye's got a much harder journey to get back to that. Mm-hmm. Okay, shall we move on? Let's move on. Next on our list here is Happier by Marshmello and Bastille. Every argument, every word we can't take back. Because with all that has happened, I think that we both know the way that the story ends. Then only for a minute, I want to change my mind. This is another closer clone, with the only difference being that there isn't a woman on the track. (laughs) Now, I like the message of this much more than the execution. Bastille Senior reminds me of being stuck near a millennial landlord in a restaurant or bar. In another era, he'd have been a poet in a family of empire builders. He would have been the bard of the East India Trading Company. This song was written for Justin Bieber, and I think that man would have sang it better. But, as I say, the message, the moving out of someone's life without rancor, because that would leave them better, is a mature take on one of Pop's most justified and ancient themes. Lately, I've been, I've been thinking, I want you to be happier, I want you to be happier. While we've discussed today about how this chart is, if anything, too mature, I do enjoy, you know, in the most small and homeopathic of doses, a bit of maturity to the pop music and the ideas behind it so it's a thumbs up from me in terms of what the song is saying and a thumbs down from the vocalist they chose to express it i don't think bastille does a necessarily bad job one of the things i do like about him is he still has these little affectations of his own accent which pop through every so often and i'm left there with my thoughts and the image of you being with someone else while it's eating me up I remember in the first half of the 2010s, I remember really liking a Bastille song Pompeii, which was his big breakout hit, Mm -hmm. because the production on it was really unusual. It didn't sound like anything else I'd actually heard before. Great clouds all over the hills, bringing darkness from above. But if you close your eyes, does it almost feel Pompeii was inspired by these frozen corpses littering the street after a natural disaster, stuck in a museum talking to each other, which is a kind of concept that you wouldn't expect to find in a pop song, which seems to be pretty absent from the lyrics of this. Bastille has just become yet another thing that you can pay to have on your track to give it a veneer of quality. Where this really breaks down for me is the chain smoker style drop. So a lot of ink was spilt in the mid-2010s about the replacement of the hook for the drop. Something basically taken out of EDM music where the producer would just handle everything and there would be no vocals or just like some little vocal chops maybe. The thing is the drop also just ended up with all of the stuff that made it stand out kind of sucked out of it by the streaming economy and the the political pressure to appear good taste, with the result being that the drop here incorporates a grand total of about six notes and feels like a beginner piano piece. No, that means I'll have to leave. 
The idea of the drop, of course, probably came to its peak with dubstep music, music that was designed for a night out to be in a sweaty club whilst you're filled with MDMA and the idea of the building tension throughout the track until it's unbearable and then the slamming kind of explosion of the musical themes there leading to a great thrill. It simply isn't suited to a streaming economy, to wallpaper music at all. It's so disturbing to me. I think the backlash to dubstep is part of the reason why the charts ended up in this space. The thing that was really exciting about the big popular wave of dubstep was the quality and timbre of the sounds used, which were big and ugly and alien. They were sounds that wanted to scare you, and they were sounds that I had not heard in pop before. And in many ways, it was the perfect sound of the 2010s. It was the sound of looking at your computer and your phone simultaneously while off your tits on hydroponic skunk. But it got so ubiquitous. Everyone was using it in their Call of Duty headshot compilations. Taylor Swift went dubstep. And it disappeared. And the stuff that seems to have hung around from dubstep by this point in pop are the vocal chops, which come out of Skrillex. And the structure of having a drop. Yeah, and the 2006 to 2008 era of dubstep still sounds fresh as anything. You can return to those songs and still hear some signposts towards the future. But to take individual elements of that and to incorporate it into this, I think, is just to completely miss the point of why they were good. Isn't Marshmallow some sort of awful Nepo baby? Possibly. I didn't find them interesting enough to research prior to being here. There's a, there's a bunch of like really awful Nepo babies on this chart. Jess Glynn probably being the most toxic. <laughs> Jess Glynn and her one song. The last of our top five today is Body by Loud Luxury. You already know how this one sounds. You wanna down in the six. But when I lean for the kiss, you said I'll probably send you some bits. And I'm like, hell no, been waiting too long. Hell no, I want that cruel love. Hell no, been waiting too long. It's a bit more danceable than the other ones of these in the top five. This is the one that I think would be most likely to actually go off if you were playing it somewhere where you would expect to dance. The thing that it has going for it, more than the others, first of all, it's a little bit cooler. The lyrics, instead of drawing from the country tradition, are drawing from hip-hop imagery. There's, like, ideas of crew love. I want that crew love comes from a Drake song. I'd much rather spend it all while I'm breathing. That OBO and that XO is everything you believe in, I know. Crew, oh, they loving the crew. Oh, they loving the crew. And 
there's a bit of clever wordplay, things like give me some verbs, I ain't talking nouns. Give me some verb, I ain't talking nouns. Secondly, what is really interesting here is the vocal production. It has been manually chopped up in such a way that it's still identifiably the same vocal performance, but the consonant has been squashed and the vowel has been extended and flattened. And it creates an effect I haven't really heard before. Yes, it does feel new. It also reminds me of peak of dub reggae in the late 70s. Something like Augustus Pablo, King Tubby. Elongation of parts of the vocal performance over a kind of steel percussion basis underneath. That was one of the things I really appreciated and liked about that, is that in finding something new, it hearkened back to one of the most progressive, danceable musics that we've had so far, really. It's one of the more likeable in the top five, but yeah, there's not really much else to say about it. Gosh, was this the worst top five we've had to deal with yet? It's all so samey that it was difficult to even find a place to really grip onto them critically. And the one that is the most critically interesting is also the most repulsive. I think that's probably true that this is the least interesting of the top fives that we've done. But I'm content in our overall brief for this show because it has helped me at least reconnect to the lexicon of current popular music in a way that I was in danger of losing the taste of the language for this. So being able to appreciate something that has Sam Smith's voice on was a nice achievement for me just because we've had a particularly weak top five this week. I think our ability to find what's good in those continues to be there. I really do. I think enjoyment is better than not liking something. There's a thing I see a lot of nerds do and a lot of people who pride themselves on having like interesting taste where they assume that anything that is there for them to like is trying to trick them into liking it and therefore they just try and catch it out they try and find ways to explain why it's secretly bad which you usually like the things that are secretly good about it i think that some of this comes down to a heart that is closed off to the new i think it's a approach that you need to take is to look for why the good is not only to keep alive your own appreciation of new creativity but also to allow yourself to connect with your times and with the people who are around you who have this as the soundtrack to their lives that define those moments and that's what throughout this podcast throughout this first series we've done is we've been able to kind of step into other people's shoes and hear this with uh, fresh ears. There are some other people on this chart who are not very happy with the direction of chart pop in 2018. But this has gone on for a long time. So you'll have to hear about that in the next episode. Why do you look so good in those jeans?